At this time, the children may be dismissed for preschool play and worship and children's church. And as they go, I'll invite you to find in your Bible or in your iPad or phone or the Pew Bible in front of you, if you don't have any of those things, the book of Hebrews. And we will begin in chapter 7. As you're finding Hebrews chapter 7, I just want to tell you what a difficult task I have ahead of me today. Um, The same task that Jeff had for Sunday school, which he did wonderfully with. Um, I have to preach a sermon to you about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason that's difficult is that I don't know if there is any idea more foreign to us as modern American Christians than ancient Israelite priesthood. Did any of you spend a great deal of time thinking about ancient Israelite priesthood this week? Was that something that you were pondering on your way to work and reading books about? It's not something that we think about. It's the ancient Israelite culture from which Jesus came, from really from which we came in a way as Christians, is so different from everything we know as modern American Christians. Looks like they're returning some people to us. So I'm I'm not going to try to give you a comprehensive history of the priesthood uh, in Israel or anything like that. Uh, I just want to point out one contrast that might help you to get into the passage that we're going to be discussing today. Okay, if in ancient Israel, there was an ongoing and constant sacrificial system to deal with people's sins. It was ongoing, it was constant, and it was bloody. They had to kill animals to receive forgiveness from sins. And I know that seems primitive and bizarre and weird. And it is bizarre and weird, but then again, what in reality isn't when you really start to think about it. But that's that's how they lived. We, on the other hand, I think are very numb and sort of confused about sin and how to receive forgiveness from sin. They had this clear path. You know, when they, when they did something wrong, they, they knew where to go and what to do, and they would go to the priests. And the priest was there to function as an intermediary and as an advocate for them and as to help establish peace between them and God because of what they had done. And secondarily, through that process, also peace between them and the other people that they may have sinned against. Now, for us, it often doesn't seem so clear. Instead of having a plain path to be cleansed from sin, we tend to just cope with our sins. And it's not the same thing. We tend to justify ourselves. And to be clear what I mean by sins, just think back to the Ten Commandments, the classic list. Have no other gods before the one true God. Don't worship any graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Honor him with the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Which, of course, Jesus takes a step further and says, even if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. And even if you lust after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. That's sort of the classic list. Now, we do these things all the time and variations of them all the time. Because we're fallen and we're all messed up with sin. 
And when we do, often we can justify ourselves and say, well, I have, I'm more passionate about my work because my work is really demanding. And I can't help but be more passionate about my work than the one true God. So I kind of have to worship that over God. We tend to cope with our sin by comparing ourselves to other people. You know, my, my language may be bad, but it's not as bad as the guys at the work site. We tend to cope with our sin by distracting ourselves, the TV on, the radio on. I heard a study recently, I was talking with my family, that they did a study on people to see what they would do if given a choice between sitting in a room by themselves or giving themselves electric shock. So they put them in a room and said, just sit here and whatever you do, don't touch this machine. It will shock you. And people couldn't stand to just sit there alone with their thoughts and they actually would electrocute themselves. Some of them upwards like a hundred times. We have to be distracted. Sitting alone in a room for five minutes might be the hardest thing you ever try to do. And I wonder if part of that is because we're trying to cope with the guilt and shame and regrets of our own sin. Sometimes we medicate to cope with our sinfulness, to just make the feelings go away. We'll blame other people. You know, I only did it because she made me do it. I only did it because she's so frustrating. I only hate that guy because he's so terrible. We deny that we are sinning. We try to make up for it by doing good deeds. So yeah, I, I can't stand this guy and I feel hatred and bitterness toward him, but I'll make up for it by being a really good dad and really loving to these people. We cope with our sin by lashing out at people, displacing the the feelings of unease we have because of our sinfulness onto others, or by trying to do penance, trying to punish ourselves. Consequently, many of us, many among us, many people that we know are living their life under a constant dull ache of guilt. And it might not even be something they can put their finger on, but just a dull ache of, of guilt or a panicky pang of shame. A lingering cloud of regret, that creeping terror of potentially being exposed, someone finding out the truth of what's beneath the surface, frantic need to explain ourselves and justify ourselves, a helpless frustration in this cyclical sin that we can't stop, that feeling of dread that you get when you're hiding something from someone and you're afraid they're going to see it. On your face. The inescapable conviction of the Holy Spirit. Many among us, many people we know, live in this sort of low-grade misery because they don't know what to do about their sins. Today, what I want to encourage you to do is to look your sins straight on. To see them plainly. To not distract, to not look away, to not use any of those coping mechanisms I just described. If there's something you've been feeling is wrong in your life and you tend to, in your mind, go through a process of justifying why it's not a bad thing, just see it for what it is, relax, look at it. All those feelings I just described, if you have been experiencing those and you've been stuffing them down and trying to shake them off and just trying to live your life, I want you to just for right now, Accept them, embrace them even, because those are the feelings that remind you that you need a priest. 
See, we still need a priest. Even though we're not ancient Israelites, we still need a priest. You need a priest. Not a pastor, not a friend, not a confidant, not a counselor, not a psychologist, not a mentor, a priest. Because a priest's function has always been to go between sinful us and holy God and make things right. And no amount of coping will make things right. None of those things I listed at the beginning have ever made a person feel better in all the history of the world. Maybe for like a split second. We need a priest and I have really good news. We have one. One who can make us clean. One who can make us right before the holy God. One who can make us right between one another. So I want us to to pray. And then we're going to read a passage from Hebrews. And it's actually quite a simple passage from within what is actually a really complicated passage. But we're going to go simple this morning. So would you bow with me? And if you dare, pray this prayer with me to yourselves. Father, my prayer has been and it is this morning that you would just go ahead and do it. The the painful, scary, sometimes terrifying work of reaching down into our hearts and dealing with our sin. Lord, we open ourselves up to it. Maybe there's things some of us have been hiding and running from and trying to deny. Lord, we stand before you now acknowledging our sinfulness and our need for a priest and our need for forgiveness and cleansing. If there are any among us whose consciences have been seared over time from ongoing sin and ongoing um, efforts to conceal, I pray that you would graciously and gently but firmly just rip that callus off. Uh, may the, the nerve endings of our consciences be exposed this morning. May we be sensitive to our sin. May we see it for what it is, for the rebellion that it is against you, our righteous king, for the, the contaminated filth that it is before you, our holy God. For the very things that demanded that Jesus Christ be nailed to a cross. Help us to just see plainly these things for what they are. And may the pressure that this brings send us all running to you through Jesus Christ, our priest. Help us now as we meditate on your word. Please speak to us and draw us near to you through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I'm I'm taking sort of a quantum leap forward in Hebrews this morning. Uh, we're in Hebrews 7 and we're actually going to we're going to accomplish a, a basic study of Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and the first half of 10 this morning, but by no means in a thorough way. Uh, Jeff did an excellent job with Hebrews 7 during Sunday school, and he has a sheet of notes that maybe you can get a, a hold of if you missed it, and you're going to discuss it further in House to House this week. But I just want to point out Two really, really good things about Jesus as our priest to you. 
This is going to be especially precious to those of you who you know you're right in that spot of what I described at the beginning. First, I just want to point out to you that Jesus is our permanent priest. Jesus is permanent, a permanent priest. And that comes from Hebrews 7, verses 23 through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. The priests of the ancient Israelite culture, there were a lot of them, and you know they would die, new ones would come. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, or completely, or at all times, those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our permanent priest. You know, Doolin's Grove has seen a lot of pastors come through. And I don't mean to compare your pastors with Jesus as the priest because they're not the same thing by a long shot. But you've seen many pastors come through. We've been pulling together our archives of all of our history and um, Doolin's Grove has seen a lot. And there's several pictured on the walls out there. And I know you've had some interim pastors kind of slipping in between as, as you've looked for pastors. Um, and you, many of you have felt the difference between uh, being under the guidance of an interim pastor versus a permanent pastor. See, Jesus is no interim. Jesus is permanent. He is fully invested in you. He is there to stay. And he's not going anywhere. Now, going back to the pastor example, you know, I'm in my sixth year with you. If, if I manage to obtain the average of all those men pictured on the wall out there, I only have another four to six years with you. Now, I hope to be here for decades. I pray for decades with you because I can't fathom how it can work otherwise. And thank you. I can't fathom how you can pastor a congregation without decades. Um, but who knows what the Lord's will is. Some of you may already have plans for me to be out of here by the time I finish my sermon. Um, but even if I'm able to stay here until I die, even if I can stay here all the way to the end and I can have them wheel my casket in and I can, and can get into it and preach until my last breath and then slump over and be buried out in the cemetery. That's still only another, what, 50 years, 60 years? Depending on how healthy I am. That's not that long. And your generations will continue to come through. And there will be other men. There will be other pastors. You know, your mentors, those people that mean a lot to you, even maybe your parents, those are brief, brief influences. Jesus is forever. He is forever your priest. Always your priest. And consequently, as it says there in verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. To the uttermost, which, which as Jeff said in Sunday school, it might mean that he saves you to the uttermost, like all of you. Or it might mean that he saves, uh, in terms of time, to the uttermost, forever. Um, it, could, it can mean both. They're both true. But I think he has in view here forever. Salvation forever. And like Tom said, not because of how awesome you are, but because of, because of how awesome Jesus is. Permanent. All those other ways that we cope with our sin are so temporary. 
you know, you turn on the TV to, to dull your conscience for the evening. Soon as it goes off, it floods back as you try to go to sleep. You distract yourself with a fun time with friends, and then the very next day, it's back. That sin you struggle with, that guilt you carry, that shame you hide. But here we have permanent, permanently, Jesus Christ who says, you don't need to live like that. I'm here to make you right with God. And then beautiful, beautiful end of verse 25. He always lives to make intercession for them, for those who draw near to God through him. He always lives to make intercession for you, assuming that you're drawing near to God through him. Always lives to make intercession for you. Have you ever had the experience of, I'll look at it from both angles. You've been, you were praying for someone one day, they came to your mind while you were driving down the road and, and you just remembered from maybe hearing a sermon or something that that probably means the Holy Spirit wants you to intercede for them. So you started praying for them and maybe just for five minutes or so you focused on that individual and you prayed for them. And then you get home a couple hours later and you see on Facebook, they post something big was happening in their life right when God prompted you to pray for them. How also has any, have you ever experienced that? It's okay. No, some of you that happens and it's beautiful. Or have you ever been going into some really difficult situation um, and just felt like I need someone to be praying for me? And so you'll call, you know, whoever it is, you know, that you can really rely on to be praying for you and ask for prayer. And it gives you this sense of boldness and confidence when you're heading into that situation, knowing that right then someone is praying for you. See, this verse is saying that right now Jesus is praying for you. Right now, he's interceding on your behalf before the Father. You know, later today when you're with your family, right then he is interceding for you. As you think back over your week and all the things you experienced, all through that, he was interceding for you. That is glorious. And he'll always be interceding for us. How many times have you said, you know, you hear somebody, you're passing them in the the lobby or you see them somewhere out in the supermarket and... They tell you something they're struggling with and you say, well, I'll I'll be praying for you. And then just gone from your memory. You never pray for them. Has that ever happened to anybody? Okay. That doesn't happen to Jesus. He never forgets. He's always interceding for us. That's amazing. So Jesus, in Jesus, we have a permanent priest. And in Jesus, we have a perfect priest. And this comes from Chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And he's about to list some attributes of Jesus. And just let these hit you as I say them. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The big idea is, if you were an ancient, ancient Israelite and you came to the priest, that was a fellow sinner 
who was helping to mediate between you and God. God made provision for men to do that function, but imperfectly. And now what we have, it says down in chapter 8, that was a copy and a shadow of what we have now. What we have now is a perfect priest who doesn't even need to offer sacrifice for his own sin because he never sinned. He focuses fully on sacrificing himself for your sins and for my sins. There's this misconception that pastors are holier than parishioners or church members. And sometimes people will come to me as though I am a priest, as though I am, you know, the holy one. And I've had people confess sins to me and I can tell they don't, they may not even think this, but they're doing it because they're just looking for relief from this guilt and this fear as though I can absolve them. Like I'm a Catholic priest who, by the way, have no power to absolve any sins. That's a total misconception. I'm, we're the same. I'm one of you. We together go to the one perfect permanent priest, Jesus Christ. And he perfectly intercedes for us. And he perfectly forgives us of our sins. And he perfectly rids us of the guilt and shame. Perfectly and permanently, forever, completely, to the uttermost. Such good news. It's great news. Since we have a perfect priest, that means we can have perfect peace with God and with man. Not because you're so holy, but because he's so holy. Christianity is beautiful, isn't it? Now, because he is permanent and perfect, he is able to usher in what's called the new covenant. And what's awesome about the new covenant is that it's founded on better promises. That's what it says in chapter 8, verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. I garbled that all up. Let me read it again because it's a great verse. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So you had the ancient Israelites living under the old covenant, sacrificial system, And now here we are in the new covenant under the sacrifice of the one man, Jesus Christ. And it's founded on better promises. And I want to leave you with these better promises. Okay? So first, over in verse 10 of chapter 8, because Jesus is our permanent and perfect priest, we're promised real change. We're promised real change. If you were to go to a Catholic confessional, now I don't want to generalize because I do believe many Catholics are brothers and sisters in Christ, but if you go to a Catholic confessional looking for that priest to be able to absolve your sin, you're going to walk out of there maybe with a temporarily soothed conscience, but you will not walk out of there changed. But see, in Jesus Christ, we have a promise of real change. Look at Chapter 8, verse 10. In all these verses, he's explaining what it means about the better promises. And it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will inject my law, my ways, 
into their minds, their very way of thinking. And I'll place them into their hearts, that very deep core of who they are and what they desire and how they feel. Instead of just offering them some advice about how they might behave better, I'm actually going to change their minds and change their hearts. Those coping mechanisms that I listed out at the beginning, justifying ourselves, comparing ourselves to people who are worse than we are, distracting ourselves, medicating ourselves, blaming other people, denying that we're sinning, trying to make up for it or serve some sort of penance. Those things, again, they may make us feel better temporarily, but they do not change us. But Jesus Christ promises real, actual change. The second promise Real change and a new identity. Look at the second part of verse 10. He says, I will put my laws into their minds and, I, and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. Through the work of Jesus Christ as our priest. See, some of us in our sin, we don't move toward God because I think we're afraid of what we're going to see in his eyes when we get there. I think we're like the prodigal son returning full of shame and guilt and filthy and, and covered in the consequences of our decisions. And we're worried he's going to come out and just slap us and yell at us. But remember what happened in that beautiful story. At the end of the road, he sees his father running out to embrace him. And thanks to Jesus, that's what we see in the father when we draw near to him in our sin. Not rejection, but embrace. He says, Yes, I'm so thankful that you repent. I'm so thankful that you're coming. You're drawing near to me through your priest, Jesus Christ. I will be your God. You'll be my people. I'm yours. You're mine. That's a good promise. So he promises us, promises us real change, new identity, and lastly, a clean slate. Look at verse 12. Now, as we read this verse, this is the last verse we're going to read. If the Lord brought to your mind sins in your life, hidden things, um, shameful things, guilty things, regrettable things, things you've been trying to keep from being exposed, all these things, I want you to have those in your mind when you hear this promise that we have in Jesus Christ as our permanent and perfect priest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I'll be merciful toward their iniquities. I'll remember their sins no more. Through the work of Jesus Christ as our priest, God has no running slideshow of our sins running in the back of his mind when he looks at us. God doesn't look at us shaking his head saying, yeah, well, you're in thanks to Jesus. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have forgiven you. Look, you're still struggling with sin. I shouldn't allow you to be my people, but I will. Because I'm nice like that. You better be thankful. He's not like that. He, he's, he's never going to bring it back up again. Now, our enemy might. He might accuse you and say, remember what you did or how you used to be. But God never does that. Now, is it that he actually can't remember it? Oh, that happened? I forgot all about that. Well, no, he's God. He's, he's all-knowing. It's that he never chooses to bring that again to his remembrance. 
It is done. When you draw near to God through Jesus Christ, when you give your sins over to him, when you in full vulnerability and full honesty and full exposure say, I need a priest. I, I need a priest. Full forgiveness, salvation to the uttermost, slate wiped clean forever. Never to be returned to again. What wonderful promises we have in our priest, Jesus Christ. So I want you, I want me, I want all of us and my family and your families to look our sin in the eyes. We don't have to live afraid of our sin. We don't have to live justifying ourselves. We don't have to shift blame. We don't have to explain ourselves. We don't have to hide. We don't have to live life with a secret load of guilt and shame and remorse and regret. Let those feelings produced by your sin send you to Jesus Christ, your priest. Hope in these promises that he can offer you real change, new identity, clean slate, You will be changed, embraced, and forgiven when you draw near to God through Jesus Christ. So I'll leave you with this word. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, this good word. Thank you that you have proclaimed to us good news not helpful advice. Thank you that you've not just given us seven tips to do better with whatever it is we're struggling with, but that you actually came down here and dealt with it all yourself and got your hands dirty. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Help us to draw near to you through him. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.